Welcome to the ESG Matters Podcast. My name is Ahmad Gomez, and I am your host. Today, I have Urvashi Bhatnagar, who is a healthcare executive whose career spans clinical care, research, advocacy, and strategy, operations consulting for leading healthcare organizations. As a mission-driven population health and sustainability expert, she has over a decade of healthcare leadership experience working with clients to advance health outcomes in underserved communities, leveraging advanced analytics and strategy to address barriers to care, advancing health equity, and improving access to life-altering health care quality. Batnagar holds an MBA from Yale University and a doctorate of physical therapy from Boston University. She believes wellness can be achieved through sustained and intentional investment in products and processes that are designed to be inherently sustainable and capturing value from the triple bottom line advantages that sustainability offers. She is also the author of the Sustainability Scorecard, How to Implement and Profit from Unexpected Solutions. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you here. So I gave a brief background about yourself, but I was wondering if you could tell a little bit more about your background and what was your motivation behind writing the Sustainability Scorecard, How to Implement and Profit from Unexpected Solutions. Absolutely. I have a career in healthcare. And when I started my career in India as a physical therapist, I worked very closely with polio patients, which was interesting because polio had been largely eradicated from the world and even India. But I worked in this one hospital which had India's last and largest polio ward for reconstructive surgeries and things like that. And it was really a unique situation, not just for the fact that because of the population subset, but because it was very close view into how overall patient wellness was really, really affected, not just by their their regular interactions by their care team, but also their social and environmental inputs and health equity factors and things like that. And I'd say that was really a very strong driver in my interest, sort of in trying to understand the healthcare system overall and the ecosystem and all the different inputs that affect individual wellness and long-term health. And so that really sparked the interest. I went on from there to do a variety of things, but always kept this broader perspective in mind. And I was so fortunate to meet my co-author in business school. And he is, uh, so Paul Anastas is the father of green chemistry and has done such impactful leading work in the chemistry space that has affected all industries. Chemicals are an input to every industry that we can think of. And so just chatting with him really inspired me to dig deeper into this space and really start thinking about how, as you mentioned, those intentional and sustained investments into long-term wellness and overall health, how those can be achieved by way of the products and the processes and the, all of these economic factors that we are exposed to on a daily basis, but probably don't pay enough attention to. So I think that's a really good point when you talk about how we really don't pay attention to a lot of things that are really impacting both our health and our, our wellness. 
and how sustainability can not necessarily be a panacea, but it can help to alleviate some of the issues that we're currently facing when we think about our own sort of uh, physical health, mental health, and things of that nature. So when I was reading your book, one of the things that stuck out to me was the four principles of managing and scaling sustainability. And I was wondering if you could sort of elaborate on those concepts. Absolutely. So yeah, the four principles uh, for managing and scaling sustainability are really the pillars upon which our scorecard is built. And so the four principles are waste prevention, which is important that we focus on prevention. The second is maximizing efficiency and performance. The third, utilizing renewable inputs. And then the fourth is safe degradation. And I can go into them one by one. So, but very briefly, waste prevention, when we think about that, we really say, think about waste prevention in the very beginning of your product design process. And so when you think about preventing, you're really looking at it as a line item or a constraint in your product innovation to say, how can I design this out? I would prefer not to sort of minimize the waste because that's a little bit more downstream. That assumes that we've already gone through the process of product innovation and redesign and things like that. And and now we're at the point that we're thinking further down the line, okay, how can I minimize the waste? What can I do about packaging? What could I do about, you know, ABC things? Oh, oh, there's a toxic chemical. Is there something we can replace really quickly? I've seen this come up a lot of times in my discussions with leaders and with innovation groups. And what I always recommend is that let's upfront that as a design constraint in the very beginning. 70% of product's budget is allocated in the design phase because that's where all of the specs are laid out. And so what we recommend is that we actually have waste prevention as one of those specs, one of those line items that you're going to say, I'm just going to design this out as much as possible and really start thinking about it that way. And then with the second principle, maximizing efficiency and performance. Here we really talk about rethinking the definition of performance. When it comes to sustainable products and processes, there's a myth that you're going to end up paying more for a product that performs poorly or suboptimally in comparison to its peers or others in its class. And that's quite simply just not true. So what we say is a sustainable product needs to perform as well as, if not better than others. But also, if we're expanding the definition of performance, we not only want it to be more effective, but we also want it to be produced in a socially responsible way and also be environmentally benign and non-toxic to human beings. And so when you think about, for example, something like even like cleaning liquids, some a chemical might be very effective at cleaning and sanitizing spaces. It's extremely relevant in hospitals. It might be extremely effective, but if your workers are getting sick from the fumes and taking sick days off, or if there's a risk of burns and whatnot, then then at the end of the day, it might be effective, but it's just not performing well because it's endangering lives at the end of the day. And it's just quite simply unsafe. And so when we expand the definition of performance, you really end up creating a product that not only performs better technically in the function it's supposed to do, but it also is responsible socially and non-toxic to human beings. So that's the second principle. The third is to use renewable inputs, which sort of explains itself as to move away from fossil. And then the fourth principle is ensuring safe degradation. And that really kind of loops us back to the first principle. So safe degradation is 
that we're going to try as much as possible to design out waste. But if we must have waste, and if we can't find any alternative than for some parts of that product to end up in a landfill, then we should try as much as possible for those to degrade safely. Um, so that it doesn't endanger the surrounding communities that are going to drink that groundwater and things like that. And so uh, those are the four principles for managing and scaling sustainability. And thank you for that. I think it's really helpful for people to understand. And I think one of the, the through lines for all four is really thinking about being more strategic and the evolution of what sustainability means. I think in the beginning, we really thought about sustainability as an afterthought and really thought about it in a way that you were giving something up and you were giving it up because, oh, the environment is important. So you're going to make this sacrifice. And the thesis that I hear throughout is that what you're really doing is saying, this is important and we're valuing these other things that used to be considered sort of externalities and bringing them in and making sure that that is taken up front. And then also understanding that technology and advancements have occurred that a lot of the things that used to cost more is actually on parity with non-renewable resources that are being used or inputs being used. So make a conscious decision to look and identify ways in which your product or your service can leverage this in a way that you're not really causing more harm and damage than than necessary. And I think a lot of times people really don't understand that, especially in corporations. And then I think they also kind of struggle with the ability to figure out how to make sure this happens, right? So we know that there is a cost associated with the monitoring, auditing, and reporting on key metrics necessary to measure and monitor actions when it comes to sustainability. And a lot of people who work in sustainability or ESG and corporations have fought and successfully convinced businesses on the need to really do a lot of that monitoring and auditing. But one thing that stuck out to me is you're also advocating for a step further, which is to dramatically improve how the business operates, which can be sometimes a Herculean task. For people who work in sustainability, specifically at corporations, how would you advise them to make the business case for making sure that those four principles you mentioned are really adherent into the business in a way that they can improve the, the sort of the, the triple bottom line, as you stated? Yeah, absolutely. So first, I'd like to acknowledge those efforts in sustainability reporting and monitoring those are incredibly important. That is the first step. And that's often the hardest. So having that win for this to be a key measure for compliance is huge. And so leaders have done incredible work in getting the sustainability industry overall to this point, where it has been acknowledged as key part of our business activities. However, in order to be competitive, and strategic, we recommend going beyond compliance. And the business case for that we find is widely acknowledged, some industries more than others. For example, if you think about baby food or cosmetics, healthcare, even in oil and gas, these are incredibly large ships to turn and require a lot of effort. However, I, I do see broad acknowledgement in the business case for sustainability to say, this is important, but the struggle actually comes in the how. How am I going to do this? We have embedded processes 
embedded capital, human and otherwise, and a way of doing things that has been refined for decades and decades, because the fundamental assumption in the way the world is designed today uh, is to say our natural resources are going to be present forever. And therefore, I mean, it started at the point of the steam engine and then proliferated after that. I mean, think about motors and automobiles and we're surrounded by economic systems that run on the assumption that all of these inputs are infinite. So if we are going to turn back the wheels on that, it's going to require very intentional investment that's sustained, very intentional effort. And so while I do believe that the business case for that has been acknowledged as as being very important and consumer demand is present for having better for you products, I think it is the how that's really the challenge. And that's why we focus so much on that in the book is to recommend strategies such as running a pilot and proving out the success of a pilot in either one product line or one business unit or one process, and then leveraging the wins, whether that's uh, revenue or goodwill, and helping that cascade onto other projects within the firm and slowly converting the rest of it. And And what that does is that it affects everything. It it even goes down to your supply chain, where if you're going to change the material inputs for one product line, you now have a whole new set of suppliers, or you have suppliers that are sourcing different materials for you. It's a big change in of itself for just one service line. That's why we do recommend scaling that way. And when you think about scale, I thought about when you originally mentioned that you sort of got your cut your teeth in public health in India. And I'm thinking about a lot of times when we think about sustainability, we're always generally talking about it from a developed nation, uh, Western standpoint. And I'm curious to get your take on how this sustainability scorecard would apply or if it does to countries that are developing their economy and need to rapidly grow their industries to meet the population boom that they're currently in or that they will face in the very near future. So like what advice would you give to policymakers in those developing nations that have to balance a lot of this, the impacts of climate change and the improvements to the UN SDGs, as well as the, the need to industrialize for their economy and for the future needs of their, of their citizens? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not as well versed with the specific policies in different sort of developing, least developed nations and those sort of categories. Of course, I do understand uh, regulation in, in India quite well. But that said, I think broadly having a version of like the Clean Air Act and those kind of things is very important. But I almost think for emerging markets, the competition on the basis of sustainability is actually a very forward facing way to go. And it's going to develop some resilience into the system for the next 50 to 100 years that can propel them or bring them far further than the economies that we currently consider developed. Because we are executing sort of really big transformations and change management processes in order to turn the wheels on existing systems in developed countries and other nations that are still trying to match that economic scale can gain some acceleration by way of sustainability. And I've actually heard this in conversations as I was speaking with change makers and innovators for this book. They often mentioned that when they are looking to source material for their products, they've actually started looking at emerging markets because it is cheaper to source from outside the US. And often suppliers are 
more willing to be flexible and work with you. And so interestingly, I think the distribution channels for clean chemicals, if you will, or clean inputs, whatever those might be, are actually perhaps more readily available in emerging markets. And I think it's a huge lever for innovation and driving strategic growth. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I think what a lot of people sort of struggle with is that what sort of underlines, I think, the fundamental sort of assumption that my question had was that there's only one way to develop and then to, to industrialize an economy. And I think when we look around the, the globe, we see countries that fall into the resource trap, right? Where because they have a lot of resources that is harder to manage, their development has been hindered by that because that hasn't necessarily been the windfall that people expect. Whereas other countries that were at the turn of a lot of sort of colonies were being provided their independence, a country like Singapore, which really doesn't have that much as far as natural resources and had a lower standard of living than a lot of like sub-Saharan countries at the time, they were able to grossly develop so much faster and sustain that because they had to think about what makes the most sense for them. And I think with the scorecard, it can help people understand that this is a new way of thinking about your resources and how to develop, both if you're a company and also as a state, nation state, where you're saying, these are our core competencies. How can we really leverage this to get to the end goal that we want, which is to have a cleaner, more engaged way with working with both external investors and companies that are coming in, as well as the sort of social and societal goods that we need for our for our citizens. So I think that was a really interesting conversation there. And, you know, I just want to make sure that for people who are listening and that they are interested, they understand the sort of the basic concepts of the book that you wrote, and they want to dive more in depth into it. Where can people find your book to purchase the sustainability scorecard and how to implement and profit from unexpected solutions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so you can find us on Amazon, uh, just type the sustainability scorecard. So you can find us on Amazon and Indie Books and Barnes and Noble, just wherever you buy books, we are there. And then you can also look us up on the greenovationproject.com, where we talk broadly about our ideas and methodology, and also, of course, link to the book. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast. And I hope you all have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the ESG Matters podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe to the ESG Matters podcast on your choice of podcast platforms. This podcast is brought to you by Amat Gumis and theme music by Dexter Thomas. Thank you.